The material in this podcast is for information purposes only. It does not represent the opinions of Vested Finance and is not intended to be investment advice. We recommend you to consult with a financial advisor before committing to any financial decisions. Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 17 of our Vested Finance podcast. I'm Kaihan, your co-host, and I'm calling in from Singapore. We're here today with Darwin, one of the co-founders of Vested Finance. As always, great to be here, Kai. Today, we'll be talking about Netflix's recent Q4 earnings announcement, and we'll be doing a comparison between two of its biggest rivals, Amazon and Disney+. Yes, Netflix recently announced its Q4 2020 earnings release, and here are a few highlights. So paying subscribers base finally crossed 200 million. It's 203.66 million subscribers to be exact. And it's a couple of millions more than they expected. 83% of new subscribers in 2020 came from outside the US and Canada, where Netflix has saturated the market and is facing stiffer competition, which we will be discussing in greater details later. It's clear that Netflix growth moving forward is in the international market. But the biggest revelation from this announcement is that the company has achieved positive free cash flow, FCF, in 2020 and believes that it is very close to sustainably maintaining this positive free cash flow moving forward, which means that Netflix plans to no longer rely on debt and may restart its stock buyback program, something that it did in 2007 to 2011 but has stopped. So why is this such a big deal? One of the bear cases for Netflix is the never-ending cash spend that the company carries out to fuel original content production. So this cash-burning strategy started around the beginning of last decade. If you plot Netflix's free cash flow starting in 2012 and peaked in 2019, it's all negative. You know, in 2019, the company burned more than $3 billion. The company pursued this aggressive strategy because they knew once the incumbent media companies realized that streaming is the future, These companies will launch their streaming competitors and Netflix will be starved from the content that it needs. Early in the 2010s with this foresight, Netflix started developing its own original content. And ever since then, it has invested more and more every year to produce and create more and more TV shows and even movies, right? The original content strategy means that Netflix can distribute the content globally without licensing complications since now it owns its own content. It spends heavily upfront, but it converts variable costs because there's no licensing fees into fixed costs. You invest heavily upfront, but owns the content forever, making it a fixed cost. Now that it has more than 200 million paying subscribers globally, it can spread out the large fixed cost content anywhere between 15 to $20 billion a year that it spends on content to a large user base. So more content translates to less churn and also more growth and on and on. So this is the basis of Netflix's scale flywheel, which we've discussed in the past. Right. That makes sense. In order to raise more funds that it needs to produce original content, I guess Netflix could have done one of two things. The first is to issue and sell more shares. Basically, they dilute existing shareholders, but then they're able to generate fresh cash and invest in new content. Or they raise cash from debt. So why did Netflix choose debt? It chose debt because the company believes that debt is cheaper than issuing equity in the long run, especially in this low interest rate environment. In the past few years, Netflix has been issuing bonds at an interest rate anywhere between 3 to 6% per year. For example, there's a bond that it issued in 2015 with an annual interest rate that Netflix pays out to the debt holder of about 5.875% per year. That's about five years ago, right? In contrast, over the same time period, Netflix share price has returned a 28% annualized compound growth rate. 
So it's clear for the company and for its shareholder, it's actually cheaper to borrow money and pay the interest rate than raising cash by issuing stocks and diluting the existing shareholder. That's what the company means that in the long run, issuing equity is cheaper than issuing debt. Now, according to the bears, this is a high-risk strategy because as competition heats up, the cost of content production and the cost to acquire customers go up because of competition from Amazon, Disney, and others. And if both costs go up and debt comes due, Netflix may experience a cash crunch. But with this latest earnings announcement, Netflix has signaled that it can actually generate enough revenue, pay down its debt while maintaining a large content budget without further relying on debt in the future. So this significantly reduced the possibility of that bear case outline just now. This is why the share price popped when it signaled that it has the ability to do this now. Well, that's made it pretty clear. So how did Netflix achieve positive free cash flow in 2020? Right. So there are actually three reasons on this. But first, just a little background. On the supply of content side, with increasing competition and the need to expand internationally, Netflix has been spending more and more every year on content. It spent about $4.6 billion in 2015, and then more than 3x increase in 2019. It spent about $14.6 billion. Now, this year, it was slated to spend about $17 or so billion, but because the global lockdown, there were a lot of stoppages of production. So the spending actually went down to $12.5 billion, which is about 14% reduction in cash spend. Now, on the demand side, you also see an impact of COVID. Due to the lockdown, customers signed up in droves, accelerating Netflix's adoption by months or even years. As a result, the company was able to reduce marketing spend, but still grew faster in 2020. This translates into a lower customer acquisition cost, or CAC. Now, on top of this, because it's accelerating adoption, more subscribers means you get additional recurring revenue. The great thing about subscription business is that if you pull forward gains of paying subscribers, in other words, subscribers that would have subscribed either next year or the year after under normal conditions, but are now subscribing because of the global lockdown, the impact on revenue and therefore cash flow is permanent because now you don't have to spend on them and they start paying you that much earlier. Net churn. So in the accompanying blog post, we show this chart. Every quarter, along with the shareholder letters, Netflix management actually shows the trajectory of the net paying subscribers edition compared to the previous years of the different periods. And if you look at the growth curve for 2020, you'll see several segments. The first couple of months of the year, January and February, before the rest of the world entered its lockdown, the growth rate for the company is actually very similar to previous years, 2018, 2019. But then when the global lockdown started in mid-March, the rate of users' subscriber edition went through the roof, outpacing projections. And then in Q3, June, September 2020, it kind of tapered off because you're already pulling so many subscribers early on in Q2. And then by October, December, Q4 of 2020, growth rate normalized. If you look at that slope, the rate of addition of new subscribers of 2020 Q4 is actually very similar again to 2018 and 2019. So additional revenue is recurring. And because growth rate in Q4 was stabilized, I suppose basically to follow the previous years, I'm guessing that it's likely that the impact on cash flow would thus be sustainable? Assuming the churn of subscribers hold. Churn is paying subscribers leaving. Now, we can do a back-of-the-math envelope calculation to see the impact of the global lockdown. How much additional cash flow was acquired from pulling forward all these new subscribers? Just on revenue side of things. First, we can extrapolate in the absence of a global lockdown, what would Netflix subscribers' growth be? So we can extrapolate that January, February curve all the way through the end of the year. 
So we think based on that chart, without lockdown, Netflix would have gained about 26 to 28 million new subscribers. And you can see this graph on our blog linked on the show notes. But instead, due to the global lockdown, Netflix gained about 36.6 million new subscribers in 2020. So that's a difference of additional 8.6 million paying subscribers at an annual average revenue per user of about 32 dollars and 60 cents. So this translates to over 277 million in recurring revenue. So it's likely that this positive impact in cash flow is permanent net of churn. If I'm understanding this right, as Netflix's flywheel gets going, more content would bring in more users and then this funds more content and so on and so forth. So how do others compete with that? Yeah, so this is the billion dollar question, right? It's very difficult to challenge Netflix head on since it has such a scale advantage. But there are generally three strategies employed by others that I find interesting. Strategy one is the orthogonal approach. You don't meet Netflix head on, but you still serve content via streaming, but you fund the content production by other businesses. Some of the best businesses in the world utilize an orthogonal business model. One prime example is probably Google. Google provides a service that's free or low cost and then monetizes it another way. It gives you a free search engine, free web browser, free maps, cloud documents, and many other services, but it makes money by monetizing your time and attention in its ecosystem. In the context of streaming services, Amazon's approach is also an orthogonal one. It bundles the viewing, largely the, the streaming video service, into its prime membership. It competes with Netflix for your viewing time, but it pays for its content investments through prime membership advertisements and the sale of everyday goods through its e-commerce platform. So the internal accounting for Amazon is very different. And there are many ways that Amazon can make money from each Prime member. So it can theoretically afford to spend as much money on content to compete with Netflix, even if its subscriber base is not as large. Now, the second strategy is the differentiated content approach. Have unique content. Instead of competing with Netflix on the diversity, the different types of content, you can choose to compete on differentiated content. For example, HBO Max, owned by WarnerMedia, which is owned by AT&T, tries to leverage its DC comic franchise and has decided to move a bunch of blockbuster movies, Wonder Woman 1984, and its entire 2021 movie slate to the streaming service in lieu of theatrical releases. It's still an open question whether this strategy will work for HBO specifically because the content may not be good enough to entice users to sign up. I mean, have you seen Justice League? Also, customers may not have the budget for a fourth or fifth streaming service. So you really have to have strong differentiated content and franchise. As of early December, AT&T disclosed that the streaming service HBO Max has a little over 12 million subscribers, which is still a very small number compared to Disney Plus or Netflix. Now, strategy three combines the two. You have differentiated content and you have all these other businesses that actually helps pay for content. One company that is trying to have this mixed strategy is Disney. Disney, as you know, has a long history of rich differentiated content. Star Wars, Marvel, Disney, and Pixar, and others. Also, legacy businesses from theme parks, from merchandise sales, from cable business that allows the company to compete with Netflix. This is the two-step approach of Disney's trying to be a streaming company first. Number one is to grow its user base using Disney Plus as its primary streaming platform. The goal is to acquire users and have a direct relationship with the customer. In October 2020, Disney announced that it's reorganizing its company that elevates the importance of the streaming service, Disney Plus, and puts all the other business units under it in terms of strategic alignment to maximize ability to monetize Disney Plus content. Disney Plus is now the spearhead of user acquisition for the company. 
since its launch, Disney Plus has been priced to undercut its competitor. So it's about seven bucks a month in the U.S., which is cheaper than about fourteen dollars per month for Netflix or fifteen dollars per month for HBO Max. And in a little over a year, Disney Plus has amassed about eighty-seven million subscribers or so, close to half of that of Netflix, right? And this is actually achieved four years ahead of projections. And about thirty percent of this eighty-seven million subscribers is.、Um, Hotstar subscribers, which is the leading streaming service in India, so Disney actually has very strong foothold in India in terms of streaming. So clearly, this strategy of differentiated content is working. Its growth is ahead of plans, and now it plans to slowly increase price. The first one's coming March 2021, similar to what Netflix has done in the past. Now, step two is to monetize via other means. For Disney, this is through its legacy businesses. Disney can monetize its franchises via merchandise sales, from Baby Yoda toys to Marvel action figures, and then theme parks. Star Wars Galaxy Edge was just opening、uh, before the global lockdown in 2020. So far, investors seems to like what they're seeing from Disney. Recently, its share price reached an all-time high, despite a significant portion of its business still being hampered by the global lockdown. Parks experience and products, which is a significant contributor to its operating revenue, is actually still down 61% in Q3 2020 compared to the same period in 2019. But its share price reached an all-time high. Actually, speaking of Disney Plus, they've become quite a formidable foe. So, how does this affect Netflix? Yes, it has the business model to compete on content investments. It also has the differentiated content that people want. Also, it has the significant foothold in India through Hotstar, as I mentioned before, which is an important growth market for Netflix. So, at this point, we can speculate, but especially in the U.S. and Canada, where there are a lot of options, Netflix will likely observe increased churn, increased people just hopping around. The average U.S. consumer typically has three to four streaming subscriptions, and with increased competition, it is likely that Netflix has experienced higher churn. Although it's difficult to discern from the data that they release, as I mentioned, it's probably true for other streaming services as well. According to Bloomberg, for Q4 2020, the last four months of 2020, about 40% of new subscribers of the various streaming services. HBO Max, Disney Plus, and even Netflix. These are people who are service hopping. They are reactivating their subscription service where they have deactivated in the past. Forty percent of these new subscribers of these various streaming services—Netflix, HBO Max, and Disney Plus—are people who have subscribed in the past. This means that as the market is becoming more mature, consumer loyalty decreases, and viewers will pause subscriptions and will continue only when a show they want to watch appears. This makes this business even more hit-driven in terms of content than before. Both Disney's and Netflix's share prices have recently popped, and I guess that means investors are buying into the streaming narrative. Am I right in saying that the valuations of these companies are high? Yeah, this is actually a very tricky thing to answer. Let's look at enterprise value over sales as a valuation metrics. The higher the valuation is, we pick this because it takes into account the impact of debt in enterprise value. So the next twelve month EV over sales of Netflix is about eight point seven. Disney is five point three. Depending on the lens you look through, it can look expensive. The total U.S. stock market enterprise value over sales is about three point seven. So both companies is about one and a half to two times higher than the total U.S. market. But if you look at the sub industry, where do you put Netflix? Is Netflix an entertainment company? It has to create shows that people like to fuel growth, like an entertainment company. As I mentioned, it might be even more important to be hit driven nowadays. But it also has software-like qualities, right? Streaming, recurring revenue. And if you look at the software entertainment sub industry, the EV over sales is about eight point two. 
at 8.7, Netflix is in that ballpark. And Disney is cheaper. But then Disney has all these other traditional businesses, sales of merchandise, theme parks that right now is actually not performing very well because of the pandemic. In short, there's no short answer. It depends on what lens you look through. <laughs> I guess that's a good point. We have this chart to show this comparison on the blog post, which we'll link on the show notes. Well, that sums up today's podcast on Netflix. Look forward to our next chat, Darwin. Thanks, Kai. Until next week. To our listeners, we hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode. For more insights into markets and emerging technologies, please visit our blog at vested.co.in. As always, take care and stay safe.